0: Welcome to episode number 14 of The Music Plays the Band. I'm your host, Rob Koritz with the Dark Star Orchestra. I'm really glad you all are joining me today, and I hope you're safe and well. So great to be back with you today, and so great to be back on the road playing music. Uh, we just got back from the mini version of our annual Dark Star Jubilee in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, this year it was actually called the Jubilation, and it was, it was a much smaller affair, for we only did two nights instead of three, and we just had a few regional bands instead of a uh, some of the larger national acts that we would normally have. But it was great to see a limited number of people be able to camp out again, and just having to start to feel normal again. You know, we're getting closer for sure. Now we've headed into the summer, and some of the festivals are uh, able to return in capacities of different sizes. You know, some are gonna be very limited, some are gonna be full. Uh, It's gonna be great to see some of our musical friends for the first time in well over a year. And we've got some exciting stops lined up. Uh, Some that come to mind right away, Let's see, we're doing the Peach Fest in Pennsylvania, which we always have a great time at, even though it usually rains on us. Uh, We're doing some other East Coast stuff later in the year. Doing a really cool thing out at the Hog Farm in California. And I'm really happy that we're gonna be, uh, we're gonna be returning to Red Rocks on July 5th. Uh, That is easily my favorite venue to play. And this kind of came up at the last minute. So it's really just icing on the cake for this summer. You can find out about all of DSO's tour schedule, and much more, including info about my terrific sponsors, a new blog that I've started for y'all. I'm trying to make an entry every week or so. And uh, how you can support the podcast. You can find out about all of that at www.themusicplaystheband.net. With me today is Holly Bolin. She does some amazing piano interpretations as a solo artist, as well as being a member of the band Ghostlight. Uh, The solo stuff is so cool. And I'm really excited for y'all to hear her talk about her approach to it, because I found it super interesting just what sort a of mindset she uses when she goes in to do this. Also with me today is Jake Wolfe of Colorado's Rocky Mountain Grateful Dead Review. Jake is a great guy, really personable, multifaceted, he's involved in all kinds of stuff, uh, and this is a fun conversation as well. So let's get right to it. The Music Moment is brought to you by The Clean Store, brandingandapparel.com for all your branding and apparel needs, technology-driven solutions, and concierge service for managing programs of all sizes. The Black Music Moment is our attempt at chronicling the profound influence of black music and musicians on the Grateful Dead, and today we honor Coco Taylor. Cora Anna Walton was born near Memphis, Tennessee in 1928. Nicknamed Coco because of her love of chocolate, she was the daughter of a sharecropper and she grew up on the farm. Inspired by gospel music and early blues disc jockeys B.B. King and Rufus Thomas, Taylor began belting the blues with her five brothers and sisters, accompanying themselves on their homemade instruments. In the early 50s, she made her way with her husband to Chicago and began singing in the blues clubs. She was spotted by Willie Dixon in the early 60s, and her recording career began. In 1964, Dixon brought Taylor to a subsidiary label of Chess Records, ironically called Checker Records, for which she recorded Wang Dang Doodle. A song that was written by Dixon and had been recorded five years earlier by Howlin' Wolf. Now for her the record became a hit, reaching number 4 on the R&B chart, number 58 on the pop charts, and selling over a million copies. Again, in 1966 a million copies is just a massive amount of records, especially for a blues album. None of her other recordings did as well, but she was nominated for 9 Grammy Awards, won 29 WC Handy Blues Awards, and was bestowed the moniker Queen of the Blues. Her recording and touring career lasted more than 40 years, all the way till her death in 2009. Taylor was one of the very few women who found success in the male-dominated blues world and influenced, among others, Shamika Copeland, Bonnie Raitt, Susan Tedeschi, and Janice Joplin. Bob Weir was a fan as well, and introduced Wang Dang Doodle to the Dead's playlist on August 26, 1983. It was played sporadically until 1989, when it became a staple of the first set. It was last performed at the penultimate show at Soldier Field in 1995. One of the coolest things about this recording is the band she had. Uh, Some real famous people on this one. So on drums, famous blues drummer Fred Bilo. Uh, On guitar, we actually have Buddy Guy. And on background vocals, we have the songwriter himself, the legendary Willie Dixon. So this is Coco Taylor's hit version of Wang Dang Doodle.
1: tonight to nanny tell fast talking fanny we're gonna pitch a
0: Today's edition of There is a Grateful Dead cover band in every town is brought to you by the Authenticity Academy, offering you online courses and private coaching. If you're feeling stuck or confused about the direction your life is going in or you've lost touch with your authentic self, the Authenticity Academy is here to help. www.authenticity.coach Today we visit with Jake Wolf from the Rocky Mountain Grateful Dead Review. Jake is more than just a player in a band. He is a teacher, advocate, and local politician as well. Very interesting guy, and I really enjoyed speaking with him. Okay, so we are here today with my friend Jake Wolf, who lives out in the Vale Valley and is one of the Colorado Grateful Dead community musicians an excellent drummer. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. Thank you for coming. I know you were traveling and you got to be tired, so I appreciate you taking the time. It's it's one of those good. Kind of tired, which
2: I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, when you come off of a, a run or a show, or, or or now we're doing these weekends, and you just uh, you're energized to be back home.
0: Yeah, and I think you get energized to leave again, which is so nice. It's just so good to be working again, isn't it? It, it is. It's great. You guys are off tomorrow, right? I
2: think Rob said he's flying. Uh, Thursday, I leave Thursday.
0: Thursday, and we just go out and play two. It's uh, the mini version of our jubilee this year. It's called the jubilation. Love it. Um, And it's a much smaller version, but at least we're getting to do some
2: stuff, right? Yep. I caught you guys uh, a week or two ago in uh, Maryland, up in Frederick. And uh, what a great adventure that was. My folks live right around there. So I got to go home for the first time since pandemic. And uh, lo and behold, you guys were playing there. And our our good friends, the IGs and a, a bunch of good old friends from my high school and hometown were there in full force. And what a
0: great setup they had for you guys. Yeah, man. I mean, that's the second time we've done it. It was so much fun. I was so surprised to see you back there. I was excited. I'm like, yeah, so let's get you on next week. So here we are. Yay. Love, Yay. How, love how things like that happen. Me too, man. Me too. So thanks for being here. Um, you've been out in Colorado and you've had quite the experience playing with the Grateful Dead bands out there, whether it was Shakedown Street or or now with your Rocky Mountain Grateful Dead review. Yeah. Um, Let's just start. Let's go backwards today. Let's start about. Let's start with the the Colorado Grateful Dead community. You have a huge community out there, and it's super tight knit, isn't it?
2: It's it's a it's amazing. Um, it's also it's a blessing to be surrounded by such a great group of music lovers that have such high passion and commitment for the bettering of our scene um, through music and through connection and. It's just, it's an, it's an awesome place to
0: be for sure. When when you go out now, primarily when you're playing these days, as far as in the Grateful Dead vein around Colorado, it's the Rocky Mountain Grateful Dead review. Correct. And that's kind of an amalgamation of a bunch of different musicians. Am I right? Yeah. The, the idea behind that was from the get-go,
2: you know, when I was in the original Shakedown Street, was when other Grateful Dead acts, tribute acts whatever you want to call us uh, are off from their said uh, you know main bands um, let's throw this thing together where you know the uh, the mode is fun you know Garcia said in this life I I, I opt for fun so I, I decided in this arrangement of people that we, we've it's got to be fun can't be stressed you know don't worry about learning tunes let's play what we know well together and have a great time doing it. And make a lot of people happy and dance. And so we were picking people from different bands together. um, About a year into that, you know, I long ago did that start? Let me back. Yeah. That was 2005. And I thought about, like, okay, we're pulling these guys together to do these things. I'm like, we should do a review of this. And I think I was turned on to the Beatles review and I wanted it to be a little more lighthearted. And if you look at the definition of review and the way we spell it, review, R-E-V-U-E, that implies a, a little bit more of a, a lighthearted, a, a comical um, m- motif. So I, I went with that spelling, which confuses some people on, on on many levels. But again, it was it's a lighthearted thing. And uh, shortly after that, you know, Rob Eaton, you're Rob Eaton, lives or. Uh, Rob Eaton senior. I should actually both Rob Eaton's I'm surrounded by Rob Eaton's in this town. Rob Eaton senior lives in Vale as well. He lives like three miles down the road from me and his son lives about two miles down the road. He's Rob Eaton junior. So up here we refer to your Eaton as senior and his son is junior. So senior and I um, decided to, to kind of, you know, join forces on this and this this was going to be our side project and we would find good people to play with you know we've had the dead fish orchestra and uh man over all these years there's been just so many people throughout uh the time this latest uh incarnation or the, the two latest ones would be i you know with your old guitarist uh john k uh, we used thank you very much for letting us use them by the way skip like uh, and baracko um rob myself oh and
0: jay lane my new yeah. man crush when you go out with uh when you put this band together so next time you do it it could be a totally different lineup it could be yeah absolutely how that, how often are you guys playing how, um, how often are you playing as the rocky mountain grateful dead review no matter what the lineup
2: you know i, I try not to do it without rob um, if possible so i kind of do it when, when you guys have holes uh I also do this thing for winter wondergrass called Picking on the Dead, which is a more, you know, acoustic bluegrassy kind of uh version of of that and that's with Tyler Grant. So, when Tyler Grant can't do Picking on the Dead and Rob can't do the Grateful Dead review, I, I I'll make up something called like Picking on the Dead review. <laughs> just to just to make things
0: interesting. Whatever it takes to keep the music coming out to the people, man. How you said you play when you can? Where do you play? Is it just in the Vale Valley? Do you travel around Colorado? Yeah, we'll,
2: we'll take it out of the uh, out of the Rocky Mountains. It's just more convenient. Obviously, Rob and I live right here. So right. when you when you guys are in our neck of the woods, it's nice to put something um, together in our hometown. Like uh, Weir is doing the Wolf Brothers June eighth and ninth in uh, at Red Rocks, and and then uh let's see the 11th and the 12th up in Vail for the GoPro Mountain Games All right and we're going to do a we're going to close out the games on that Sunday we're trying to get a couple of those guys to stick around like Jay maybe Commenté and uh, uh whoever else wants to kind of hang out for the for the afternoon and close out the games with us so right that's on. kind of our, our next uh
0: our, our next show right on do you see when you do these gigs and even going back down to shakedown street and your just your whole time in Colorado as a drummer. Do you see a lot of the same people from your community at all your shows? Oh, definitely.
2: Um, and, and geographically. So when we go to steamboat, let's say, uh, there's an amazing posse of the steamboat crew and, and faces rarely change, um, uh, other than maybe a, a couple more wrinkles, but mostly the same faces, uh, same with, you know, the Denver crew is it's a larger pool of people, but in the mountain towns for sure it's, it's it's generally the same crew. And then you see, you know, there's some younger kids that come in and they'll be introduced to us by the older crew. And it's, it's, it's definitely a family affair
0: up here um, outside of the music stuff. You do some pretty, some pretty amazing stuff in your community besides that. Well, for one, this, I did not know it was the school of rock thing. Yeah. Talk about that, that for was, a minute.
2: Well, that's a that's kind of a crazy story, man. Um, the opportunity presented itself for me. Somebody called me and said, "Hey, Jake, we're looking for a music teacher to teach our underprivileged kids at our local elementary school in Vail." And I'm like, "Underprivileged kids in uh in Vail? What's how's that even possible?" So it's it's the workers' kids. It's a uh, like a 90% Hispanic school. And I I did that for eight years. Uh, You know, I didn't know what I was doing. I never proclaimed that I did, but I knew that I wanted to do something that I wish had been done to me in terms of empowering me to love music when I was younger. But what I had started doing here was teaching orchestra. And I had had um, some issues with the classical music because I I didn't like it when I was a kid. I didn't like teaching it because the kids weren't getting it. And my argument was a G... Is a G and a note is a note. If that note is in a Beethoven piece and that note is in, I don't know, a Britney Spears song, that's the same note. You can't tell me that learning the note that way is different than learning the note that way. Maybe in the context of the other notes. Okay. But just for the note itself, come on. So I I came up with an agreement with the uh, people from El Sistema. Let me do half rock and roll. I'll do half rock and roll and we'll do half classical. And let's see what we can do. So the kids were not, they weren't playing in rhythm. And one day this girl, she picks up, she was just in my classroom. I had hula hoops, you know, hippie classroom. This girl picks up a hula hoop and she was having a horrible time playing the violin in rhythm, but she could do like backflips in her hula hoop. This girl was incredible. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, how can she do this and not like have the rhythm for the thing? And then like a light bulb clicked and I'm like, I got it. I got some mats. Put her on them, Put her in the hula hoop. I handed her her violin, and I said, "Don't think about hula hooping." And and the hula hoop was like, I, "I can't even do it, but I can teach kids how." And she was playing the stuff perfectly. And I'm like, "What is happening right now?" Then I put another kid in a hula hoop with violins. I call it via looping. Put kids with their flutes, flute looping. And all of a sudden, I had an orchestra of kids that were playing together in time while hula hooping. The hoops were also going in the same direction at the same speed while these kids were playing blew my mind. Right. I've done summer camps. Um, every year they sell out. Uh, okay. I do uh, a looping where the kids would teach them how to play ukulele while they're hula hooping. Great. Uh, I'm happy to always inspire people to teach kids and no matter what it is, it's a teachable moment.
0: Amazing. So great, man. I, 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 I love the fact that you, Everything about you is about inspiring other people. We That's, should. You know, we I, I need, don't think there's enough people that do that. I was just going to say, we need more people that do that. And whether it's at the school or in politics or in the community or with what we were talking about, the music and, and bringing all this music that we all love so much. And we're trying to keep alive and bringing it out to the community. Uh, thank you for all of that, man. It's it's an honor. And I'm, I'm blessed to be
2: in a position where I can inspire others and inspire others to inspire others is is something that's even above and beyond that. For
0: sure. Because is, anybody can do it. Is there a place that people can go and check out more about you and what you're doing musically and all your other endeavors, a website or a Facebook page or anything?
2: Yeah, sure. JakeWolf.com. JakeWolf.com. Is, is my uh, main site. Um, there's links to that for the summer i call it summer school of
0: rock and that's that's wolf with one f folks yes spelled like the animal lobo
2: howl it out
0: baby well jake wolf with one f man thank you so much for spending some time and shedding some light on you and your community and the grateful dead vibe in in, in colorado and uh and, and and just sharing your energy with us man i appreciate it so much Thanks, man. Honor and a pleasure. That's Jake Wolf from the Rocky Mountain Grateful Dead Review, everybody. Thanks so much, pal. Thanks. What a great guy. What a great conversation. He has so much going on, and we talked about so much more that I couldn't fit into the episode. If you'd like to hear the rest of this and get much more bonus content, please become a supporting patron at our Patreon site. We have giving levels to match every budget, and all come with exclusive content only available to our patrons. If you'd rather make a one-time contribution, click on the Support the Pod button at www.themusicplaystheband.net. I'm also happy to say that a portion of your contribution will be donated to the Rex Foundation, the nonprofit created by members of the Grateful Dead and friends, to fund creative endeavors in the arts, sciences and education. So head on over to www.themusicplaystheband.net to make a contribution and learn more about the podcast. We've got all kinds of stuff going on over there. Um, I just recently started a blog and every week or two I put in some stories from the road and then do a little bit of preview about the episode and my guests. Once again, www.themusicplaystheband.net Our featured conversation is brought to you by Grateful Sweats. On Shakedown or online, go to Grateful Sweats for subtle dead designs. Search Grateful Sweats on Etsy and see for yourself. Designs only other heads will get. When you're wearing the state of Tennessee with Jet in it and someone says nice shirt, you know they're on the bus. That cap with the single finger in the air also makes its point. Look great on tour with men's and ladies, tees and tanks, caps, pins, and clearance items as low as $5. Get them at www.etsy.com shop slash grateful or click from our sponsors link at themusicplaystheband.net. The featured conversation today was one I was really looking forward to. Holly Bowling gives the Grateful Dead repertoire such a unique treatment and, and I was intrigued to hear about her process. And, and the conversation certainly did not disappoint me. While, while she approaches the music differently, she does it with such a respect and reverence, and, and she gives the listener the ability to hear this music in a whole new way. It was also really cool to hear how she has to change her approach when she's playing with her band Ghostlight. So after you're done listening to this, head over to hollybowling.com to take a listen and find out more about this supremely talented musician okay so we're here with holly bowling today hello there hey thank you for taking the time to be with me today i appreciate it yeah thanks for having me on rob we met real quick in passing just for a minute backstage at the jubilee a couple years ago when you played dark star jubilee
3: yeah i think i was i was running quickly to take a flight out of there
0: (laughs) i can't believe you don't remember (laughs) so so you're at home in san francisco correct yep and uh your 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 pandemic has definitely been life-altering. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what's been going on with you?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the last year's been life-altering for just about everybody, but yeah. um, <laughs> biggest life event for me is uh, I had a kid during the time off, which has been pretty amazing. Never thought I'd have a year off the road, so kind of decided to make the most of that time.
0: <laughs> Congratulations, boy or girl. Uh, he's a boy. And his name?: Ryland. Ryan?: Ryland rylan that's awesome well congratulations i appreciate you taking the time because i can't even imagine how busy you are with uh with an eight-week-old baby in the house so did i catch you during nap time
3: yeah yep
0: perfect well this interview is a little different than uh, some of my other ones just in the fact that you come to this music primarily as a solo artist and and kind of put a really unique twist on it um So I I know that you started playing classical piano at a very young age. Can, can you kind of share a little bit about your training and your musical upbringing?
3: Yeah. Um, I started playing piano when I was five. Um, and I learned to play, um, by the Suzuki method, which is really heavy on ear training. Um, which I think is an interesting just tidbit because of how much we all rely on our ears, you know, down the road, uh, playing improvisational music with other people. But, um, I played classical for a long time. Uh, And I kind of grew up listening to that stuff. And then also um, the other stuff my parents had going around the house, which was the dead and uh, Little Feet and Hornsby and, you know, all kinds of other stuff like that. Uh, So I kind of had these two strands going through my life uh, early on. And and I think that's a pretty, pretty telling picture of my musical roots and, and kind of what led me to where I am today.
0: And you studied in college and went through the whole the whole process on a classical piano route, correct?
3: I did. Yep.
0: Was there a point? I think or was there a point where you were teaching?
3: I was. Yep. I was running my own teaching studio here in San Francisco, and uh, yeah, I I absolutely loved loved working with kids and and, uh, and teaching people music. But I kind of had to hang it up at some point when I was finding myself on the road more often than not.
0: You said that your your parents had the dead playing around the house, so. Do you do you remember when you first heard it, how old you were, when it really got into your brain?
3: You know, I don't know. It was just kind of always there. You know, like those are the songs that I remember my dad singing around the house when I was a little girl. Um, but there's definitely a point um, somewhere in high school where it went from being the music that had just kind of been around me my whole life to something that I started, you know, seeking out on my own terms and and diving into and, you know, starting to go to... Shows whatever incarnation of the dead was available uh, at that point in my life. I, I was, you know, born too late to catch uh, any shows with Jerry, but um, you know, it's it's just there was a moment where it was a shift from being, I guess, my parents' music to something that I was like, oh, this is uh there's something here for me too. <laughs> what what
0: what made that? If you can you put a finger on what grabbed you about that music and made that shift for you?
3: You know, I I, I don't. I don't know what it was then that grabbed me. I mean, I, I know what's kept me there now. Um, you know, I think it's a, a spirit of risk-taking, the non-predictable nature of the music. It's kind of the antithesis of what a lot of music is these days. Um, right. And was even then, you know, I think that was a eye-opening thing for me to, to realize, that, you know, yeah, it doesn't all have to be these four-minute canned, the same every time songs you know there's there's a whole other world there
0: so you're, you're listening to the dead before you know it's it's being ingrained in you as you're growing up and i know you're a huge fish fan how did that come about
3: <laughs> uh you know same general time period somewhere in high school uh, i just
0: that yeah. wasn't coming from your parents though
3: no fish was never their thing that was always mine i think that you know my parents saw some dead shows um back in the day and and i don't i don't think Fish was there generations band, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, do you remember the first set dead song that you heard what your dad was singing to you? What when you think back on those days, what do you think about your dad singing?
3: Oh, I I love hearing my dad sing. Still do. Um I couldn't pinpoint a song, but I just I can remember him coming home from work and hearing the music like blasting out of his car even with the windows up and I could hear his voice. <laughs> <You
0: know? laughs> That's, well, that's awesome
3: like one of those daily occurrences when you're a kid you grow up with and like i couldn't i couldn't pinpoint first song or first memory from childhood but it's just again something that was always there definitely credit my parents for that
0: it's so important to have cool parents that like the music you know i mean i'm finding that theme with a lot of the forgive me for the term for the, some of the younger people that i'm interviewing because i'm a little older now which just sounds weird in and of itself but uh <laughs> It was like like uh, Chris Jacobs, I interviewed the other day, um, and his his parents would disappear for three days at a time, and he never knew where they were gone to, <laughs> and they were gone to dead shows, you know? <laughs> and and then they'd come home and turn him onto the music. So a lot of the younger jam band musicians, for lack of a better term, really seem like they had cool parents who turned them onto this stuff at a young age, and that's just it's a testament to the generation. Uh, the generational pass of the Grateful Dead's music, how it's going to keep going because of that. you know. Now you just had a baby and I'm sure they're going to listen to the Grateful Dead. <laughs> I'm sure they probably already are. Yep.
3: Yeah. We actually just took, uh, we took him to his first shows this past week and it was up at Terrapin Crossroads. Uh, I was playing with Phil and I was like, well, we're not leaving the kid at home. So first shows uh, at seven weeks.
0: <laughs> How'd he do?
3: <laughs> he did great. He, uh, he was, you know, the guy that passed out before the show started and had to be carried out (laughs) he was that guy (laughs) sometimes more than one
0: (laughs) Uh, uh, you uh your interpretations you know i I know that the 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 fish thing was the big one that really kind of was your breakthrough moment but your interpretations you started with a transcription from what i read anyway Can you, can you kind of take me, take us through the process for interpreting a dead tune, let's say from, from its inception where I'm going to, I really want to work with this tune to where it's ready for performance or recording.
3: Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, one thing you touched on there that I I just want to dive into is this whole thing did start with a a transcription, and it's really evolved into something else since then, um, as it's kind of grown and changed over the years. So really, this comes back to my roots in in both classical and then, you know, rock music and improvisational music. Um, It started out really with this classical angle of taking this piece of improvised music and treating it like it was a classical piece and writing it down note for note and arranging it the way that someone would take, um, you know, a song that's written for orchestra and distilling it down to a string quartet or a solo piano reduction or something like that. So that original thing that got this whole thing started was not improvised on my part at all, right? It was the opposite of that was taking the improvised stuff and putting it down to something that was very carefully uh, sculpted and scripted and like very intentional about where I voiced each note. And you know, I have articulation and fingering and everything marked in this super lengthy score that I spent the better part of a year working on.
0: That was giving my question. I was like 18 minutes long, wasn't
3: it? Uh, it, it is 37. <laughs>
0: the, the, the fish, the tweezer
3: thing. Yeah.
0: It's 37 minutes. And you transcribed yeah. the whole, that's insane.
3: Wow. So it was, and it, and it was a great, um, learning process too, you know, like honing in on, on things in each player's parts that you might've missed on the first listen or the first 10 listens or the first 30 sure. listens, you know, <laughs> you really start to dive in and, um, and, and pick up little tidbits. But so since then it's really changed from, um, transcribing stuff to, um, I'm, I'm still keeping the focus on arranging at the beginning of the tunes, but then each one of them is, is turning into a, you know, a springboard to go off into these solo piano improvisations. Um, and so that's really different from where it was before. And again, this is kind of paralleling this this whole thing of these two parts of my musical life that have been there since I was a kid you know
0: so in, in today's uh, approach to it then how you're doing it now how much of it would you really have fully charted out or even partially charted out
3: it really depends on the tune so some of them uh, also I should specify as soon as the head of the song right when the the part where there would be lyrics is finished none of the rest of it is planned that's all you know i'm as surprised as as everyone else about what happens next um yeah the way it should be but um yeah some of the some of the songs the beginning is uh entirely written out i've been really intentional with some of it about um where i put the vocal line versus the guitar line and and having them shift and morph over time especially if it's a song that's um musically kind of repetitive but the verses and the, and the words that the singer is putting out there is really what tells the story and gives the whole thing its shape and its arc. So if you put that into an instrumental context and you're just going to play the same thing seven times in a row for all the verses, it's going to get stale pretty quick. So I had to come up with other ways of still trying to tell that same story without the words, which means, you know, maybe I'm not improvising that part. Maybe I'm spending hours and hours trying to mold this thing into that same sort of emotional arc that I felt like the song carried when there was a singer. Um, and then other songs... Uh, you know, dark star, for example, it's, it's a blank page.
0: Right. Of course.
3: Like that one, you just, you have to. Um, and then there's a lot of stuff that's in between, you know, there's some of them that I'll just have the lyrics on a page. And that's what I have to look at because I'm singing every right. single one of these words in my head as I go. And I want to hear the inflection that the singer would have put on there vocally, or I want to be thinking about the story that the song is telling. So that's always in my mind, even though I'm playing these in a, a totally instrumental context. Um, So as far as process, um, I tend to listen to a bunch of different versions of a song at the initial, initial starting point and really immerse myself in it. And if I need to write out any structural things or any, any things that are going to be like intricate, difficult to figure out on piano parts, I'll do that. Um, and then I kind of step away for a while and just let it settle and then I'll come back to the piano and kind of let all of those things that I've taken in from different eras and from, you know, picking apart the songs and also listening to the hold, I'll let all of those things kind of coalesce into something that feels like it can come out in my voice. I try to take that time in between so that I don't get too literal with just spelling out everything that was said. And, and you know, sometimes being really exact is uh, problematic uh, both because I'm taking a bunch of instruments and putting them onto one. So even if I could play every note that every instrument played, it would be a train wreck and, and too busy and it, it, you know, it wouldn't have the the, the thing that it should have. Um, but also I'm not looking to just, you know, exactly, you know, print out what was, what was said before and, right. and, and that, say it again.
0: That's what I wanted to ask you and you kind of just brought it up. So when you're doing this, you've got – If you include two drummers, you've potentially got six instruments, then vocals. You've got seven different instruments that you're trying to integrate into your two hands. And obviously, the melody is going to be a big part of it. But what else are you keying in on then? Is it certain instruments? Is it a Garcia solo? Is it what you hear from the keyboards or what stands out in a certain section of a song that helps you decide which way you're going to go with it?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is what makes the arranging process so interesting and so much fun, right? Like you could take the same song 10 different times and come up with 10 different arrangements or 10 different people could look at it and come up with different things that they're going to bring into the foreground versus leaving in shadow back in the back in the background. Um, I don't focus just on the keyboard part. I don't try to play favorites with my instrument at all. I'm, I'm trying to listen to the whole thing and, um, and both pick out like what's the most important elements right here, but then also like I was saying, even if I do feel like you know these these three parts are the most important, I don't necessarily want to leave them as the most prominent thing for the entire duration of the song. You know, it's interesting to pull out some of the things that might be the hidden details in the background and bring them out for just one verse, and then put them back on the shelf. You know, right. um, it's this kind of like always shifting canvas that's that's weaving different things in and out and, and leaving some things behind
0: when when you're improv- improvising and you get to the points in your interpretation where you're improvising obviously you know you're coming at it with your own creativity and your own emotion your own heart your own head but are you feeling any influence or any i don't it's kind of hard to put your finger on a way to vet, verbalize it any of the the emotion or the feeling from garcia or the keyboard players that all the stuff you've listened to when you're doing it
3: yeah i don't think it's conscious that decision you know it's more like that that early process that i was mentioning where i listen to a bunch of different versions of a song from different eras i'm just trying to soak all that stuff in you know and you know this whatever you listen to it, it comes out in your fingers later
0: do, do certain songs lend themselves to this better than other ones do
3: yeah for sure um there's there's songs that have been challenging uh, in ways that i wouldn't have expected Initially, like sometimes the, the more simple songs musically are actually the harder ones to to make work in this context. You know, there's um, there's sort of a two ways I look at this. You were mentioning, you know, taking six parts plus vocals and trying to put them onto one instrument. So um, especially on some of the more complex tunes, uh, it's really a subtractive process. So there's no way you can possibly play all these parts. And it would be much too busy and dense on one instrument, even if you could. So I'm picking and choosing what to strip away and what to leave in place. Um, on the flip side, you know, if you have a song like Morning Dew, there's not a lot happening there as right. far as, you know, you don't have a bunch of interlocking little musical parts and and crazy jazz harmonies and, you know, it's pretty straight ahead, but it's one of the hardest songs to play and play right. If you don't play it dynamically and with your entire Self invested in every note you're playing and get the arc of the thing right, it falls flat. And then, so it's you know two very different challenges. And the stuff that on the surface looks like oh that'd be the easiest ones to learn, are often the ones that are hardest to arrange or hardest to play live. Um, it just it's a, it's a different sort of challenge.
0: You you mentioned morning dew and are the ballads harder to treat and harder to deal with than some of the more up tempo stuff because of that?
3: Yeah, and you know I think the biggest reason is that it's the those are the ones that the vocals really carry the tune. You know, if you're looking at some of these these bobby tunes that have these super crazy things happening in all the all the um instruments, that's that's the thing that's driving it. You know, yeah. you take a super stripped down ballad that has three chords in it and the whole thing is the story and now you don't have a singer. Right. That's, that's a thing to figure out.
0: <laughs> but but you, you tackle them though. I mean you tackle all the ballads too as well, yes.
3: Yeah. Um I mean I wouldn't say everything. It's a it's a pretty deep catalog. <laughs> yeah,
0: is is there anything that's off limits to you that you wouldn't touch?
3: Um No, I I wouldn't say that. I was gonna say drums, but you know, I've actually been doing some, some stuff like that inside the piano. I've got lots of things to uh to I, I saw
0: Here's some stuff the piano
3: And the strings and you know, I've started getting into that. That was actually a really fun thing during um during this this whole last year of not being able to go out and play shows. I kind of started diving into my piano at home in a way that I wouldn't have, if I had been out touring. So I, uh, I hooked up a bunch of effects pedals that I usually use on my keyboard rig to my acoustic piano and started playing around with that. And uh, it just unlocked some, some really interesting soundscapey things for me. Rum started to be a thing. Um, And and so I, that's something I'll take with me out of this year.
0: Piano is a percussion (laughs) instrument anyway, even with the notes, you're still striking. Yeah. You know so it, whether it's a prepared piano or or a traditional piano in my opinion it's still a percussion instrument.
3: Yeah for sure but there's also like when you can reach inside and just start smacking things inside the instrument it's a it's a <laughs> awesome. like tactile full body you know I just want to have all the fun the drummers are, are having it's,
0: it's <laughs> and, and I just want to make my fingers move like a piano player because when when I was in college and it got time, you know, for for piano, the teacher would always like, Oh, he's a drummer, so we'll let him off easy. <laughs> you know, and I'd, I'd go to juries, and if it wasn't quite as good as the the saxophone player at the piano jury, it was okay because he's one of the percussionists. <laughs> you can you can get away with that back then. Um <laughs> You, you know, it makes a lot of sense the transcription coming from the classical world because everything's documented there. Um, and and as we're talking about, you know, when you take it to the improvisation, you know, you're incorporating that jazz mindset, that that jazz element. Was did that come naturally? Was it difficult to assimilate that into your playing after being much more regimented and, and documented when playing the you notes know, you saw on paper coming up?
3: Um, not really. I mean, I think that having an early background in in playing by ear really goes a long way. Um, the other thing is those transcriptions really expanded my musical vocabulary. You know, I, every single one of those chords or voicings that you write out and, and play a bunch of times it's then in your lexicon and in your hands, you know, and th- there's all kinds of things they did. Um, every, every transcription I worked on, like when I did the eyes of the world from freedom hall, that Really changed how I play with my left hand because there's this there's this huge section that's just phil taking the lead, and then Bob's got these really cool rhythm chords going, so that's in my right hand, and the bass line was in my left and i I kind of got to this crossroads when I was working on that thing where I was like, all right, this is really hard to keep that rhythm going and then play this very melodic bass line that jumps around all over the place in my left hand, so maybe I should just Cross my hands, or switch the voicings and move them around, and then I was like, No, 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 this is supposed to be hard, and this is this is the way we're going to do it because I'm going to come out on the other side of it being able to do something I couldn't before. So that was like a a big change for me in in my playing and also in my approach. Instead of trying to find ways around things, I love it going through them, you know. <laughs> yeah,
0: for sure. Is there, were there any uh, jazz piano players, jazz keyboardists that that had an influence on you that you listened to that you start listening to jazz?
3: Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I've always listened to some jazz. I think that the two big things that have influenced this style of playing for me, um, someone turned me on to Keith Jarrett years ago, and that was mind blowing for me just to, to realize that someone made a career out of showing up and playing an entirely improvised set that, you know, no one had anything familiar that they could be expecting to hear and people loved it. And that to me was like, okay, I want to do that. If that's allowed, (laughs) that's an option here. Sign me up. Um, And then the other thing, uh, more recently, um, I I put out an album uh, a little while back. It was my second solo piano album of Grateful Dead tunes um, called Seeking All That's Still Unsung. And that one, I was pretty influenced by Bill Evans, not so much in the style of playing and improvising, but he has this uh, record called Conversations With Myself. And it's Bill Evans playing with Bill Evans. So you have many more piano lines uh <laughs> than usual uh on that album. And that to me was like, oh, okay, that's what I want to do with this next album is overdub myself playing. So it's all still just piano, totally acoustic and stripped down and, and nothing nothing crazy happening there except for you know being able to have four hands on the keyboard instead of two.
1: what do
0: you do when you try and play those live?
3: Um, some of them they just aren't gonna sound that way. you know, like I'm never gonna be able to play Saint Stephen and have the the big drop back in be four hands worth of notes, right? like it's just it's not gonna happen. There's things that um there's things that you can do in the studio that you can't do live and things that you do better live that you can't do in the studio and and part of the idea behind that record for me was, um, I'm, you know, always trying to capture the freedom that you feel playing live as far as the improv goes in the studio, which can be a challenge, especially when it's just yourself, myself solo, you know, right. not beating off of other people in the room. Um, and I was like, well, let's look at what could I do in the studio that I can't do live. You know, let's turn it around and stop trying to sh- to shove this into that box, but try to figure out what can we do here. That's really exciting. Um, but then other songs, um, I've gotten creative with, you know, one thing I'd like to do is palm mute on the inside of the piano. So I'm I'm putting the heel of my hand or the side of my hand on the strings inside, and then playing with the other hand to get this uh, muted effect on the strings. Which means I can only be playing on the keyboard with one hand. Um, uh, China Cat is an example of this one. Uh, in the studio, I was able to, you know, use my free hand to palm mute and my that's my left hand. My right hand was playing on the keyboard and then I could go in and overdub the melody. But live, I realized um, I could try to carry two parts in my right hand or uh, I, I took this giant magnet that's supposed to be a kitchen knife block like that you would put on your wall. And I wrapped it in gaff tape, The you know, of it's course, good. it's got to be gaff tape and uh, and some felt and kind of just made this janky looking thing that I can put on the strings and the weight of it plus the magnet kind of suctions it to the strings. And then I have two hands free. So I can play one of them on the muted strings and one of them on the other ones. And so that's that's an example of you know, taking that thing that I could do in the studio and then bringing it back out of that environment and be like, okay, we can't do exactly the same thing. But how can we still have that expanded landscape where you're hearing more things coming out of the instrument than you thought you could?
0: That's a percussionist mindset, 100%. <laughs> okay. A hundred percent. Okay. I need to do this. What can I build? That's going to make it happen.
3: You know, yeah. fa- found a mm-hmm. percussion. I yeah. yeah. It, you know? My husband would come into the kitchen late at night and be like, what are you, what are you doing right now? Rummaging <laughs> through drawers and sticking forks and weird, weird shit in my piano. You know, he's like, I- I'm practicing, obviously. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. That, <laughs> that was- that's. <laughs> That, that's a percussionist mindset all the way for sure i love it i love it um with with i mean you've probably analyzed this music as much as anybody because you've dug so deep into it um and and i know you've listened to all different eras when you listen to these songs and i'm sure there's something that inspires you from each of them but is there any of the, the keyboard players that just um, people can't see this as i grab my heart that just that just appeal to you that really inspires you the most
3: I mean, they're all, they're all different. Um, I, I love the Keith era partially for what the band as a whole was doing during that time, but also for, for the palette of sounds. I'm, I'm a, you know, piano girl through and through at my heart. <laughs> um, and so, you know, they're, that's pretty piano heavy. And, um, I just, yeah, I love the palette of sounds from that time as well as just like the, the raw energy behind everything. I mean, this is, I don't think this is groundbreaking to say that that's an amazing era of
0: no, not at all. When, when <laughs> as, as, as a piano player though, then how do you, you know, I'm just thinking about this, you know, the organ when you listen to like Brent stuff, you know, that's much more sustained because you're holding notes a lot longer. And then that's not necessarily something you can do on a piano. So how, how does that
3: translate? Um, That's interesting that you bring that up. Cause uh, that's something that I really struggled with, with a lot of these arrangements was, you know the guitar even can sustain notes for so long, and that can be a huge part. Especially with um, with the fish arrangements that I did. You know Trey's playing has a ton of sustain, and the piano. Uh, you know as you pointed out, you you play a note and then it just dies away, and there's nothing more you can do with it, right? It's done. You know I can't I can't play the drummer's parts on the piano. I can drum on the piano frame and do some cool stuff there. I can't sustain a note the way that the organ or the guitar would. It's not going to be exactly the same, but I can try to reach for what that is doing in the music and and still, you know, make it be present. And as far as like sustained organ chords, um, I find myself playing those harmonies, but not sustaining them. And what I'll do is bring in like whatever the drums are doing there. I'll incorporate some part of that rhythm into the chords that I'm playing. That would be the organ sustained stuff so that I'm trying to bring in those different elements.
0: Um it's so cool. <laughs> I love it. Um again, you you got the percussionist mindset for sure. <laughs> All right, so so you hit the scene hard and when I first saw you it was at a festival and you start playing a lot of festivals. That's big stages and big crowds that are ready to rock and here comes solo piano. <laughs> was that intimidating at first? Was that hard to adjust to or are are you comfortable because you've been in that crowd?
3: You know, It's both. Um, I don't have any hang up with playing solo, being the only person on the stage. Like, you know, that's what I did for so long that that initially felt more comfortable to me than than playing in an ensemble. Um, But it is it is a little bit of a head trip to get over when it's this giant stage. And, you know, especially when I'm not playing a a festival, you know, you get to play clubs you have grand piano you have the stage right play, <laughs> play an hour-long festival slot but you're not getting a grand piano on there at most festivals so it's me and this tiny little keyboard and a lot of space on either side and uh yeah it was a it was something to to work around in my head initially now it's just it's just fun
0: yeah, Sure. <laughs> i mean we're we're at an advantage because the, the jam band fan base is like the most welcoming fan base in the world. Yeah. You know, and they're, they're forgiving, you know, when, when you're improvising, as long as you're putting your heart into it, they're okay. When you mess up, you know, it's a a very welcoming and forgiving and just open fan base. And I'm sure they took to it pretty quick.
3: Yeah. And you know, they're also an extremely well-versed fan base. Like I, I think about this a lot. Um, one thing that I, I used to do more often uh, is is I do these things called jam teases, and I I take a favorite theme from, uh, you know, an improvised section of music and drop it into whatever I was playing, and you know, the same way that people used to like quote a famous right little piece of a jazz solo that you drop into your own thing, and people would recognize it. But you know, show me another fan base where you play. You know, fifteen seconds of music that came out of a twenty-minute span of improvisation thirty years ago, and a bunch of people in the crowd will recognize it and could name the date and place where that was played originally. I mean, it's just—it's
0: <laughs> crazy. But it, you're so right. I mean, even now, just with us, I'll have people come up, and go, "Man, I saw you in Ventura in two thousand one. You remember you guys played that Scarlet Fire that went in?" Of and- course. <sighs> <laughs> I don't remember that, but I'm so glad that you do. <laughs> you, know, it, it, you just don't. So you, you already went there. Now you're playing with bands as well. You know, you're you're a member of Ghostlight and you mentioned you just played with Phil, which was a pretty big group if, I, if I'm if i not mistaken. Is that a big adjustment? Now you're going from a solo artist to one of many voices.
3: Um, It's not so much now. Uh, initially, it definitely was. I would say now it's more of a thing where it can be a little hard to shift gears if I play Solo a bunch, I have to really recalibrate what I want my brain and my hands to do um, when I when I'm playing with other people. Um, but the, you know, the more you make that transition, the easier it becomes to flip the switch.
0: When when you play Grateful Dead tunes in that setting, like I'm, I'm sure I haven't seen the set list, but I would presume the Phil shows it was a big chunk of it was Grateful Dead tunes, if not all of it. Right. When you when you do that, imagine that I figured that out by myself. <laughs> When you do that, do you do you have to do you consciously try and stay away from some of the some of the things you might play or some of the devices you might use when you're performing that music solo? When I mean, you're trying to just take a 180 degree different approach to it,
3: I mean, you have to, right? There's things that I do um, that don't work in a band setting. Um, I, I mean, right off the bat, the most obvious thing is I'm trying to play the bass lines in my right hand and i gotta i gotta get rid of that real quick <laughs> especially um, a terrapin yeah yeah um <laughs> not a good move but the other thing is you know for me when i'm playing solo lots of times i'm playing you know one sort of rhythm in my right hand and one sort of rhythm in my left hand maybe i'm doing four against three or something like that because it's it's what a guitar and and drums would have done against each other to build tension you do that with a bunch of other people on stage and all of a sudden it's just a mess, right? Like I have to, I have to stay in one lane instead of trying to be swerving all over the freeway, you know? <laughs> but I think the other thing, and, and this is what's really cool about having both of these worlds still going for me, the solo thing and and then playing with bands. Um, you know, there's a, there's a total freedom for for playing solo I can make a left turn whenever I want I don't have to make eye contact with anyone I don't have to wait for anyone else to be on board I can just do whatever I want um and that's incredibly fun and incredibly freeing and it's also a lot of responsibility you know there's no one to cover you if I make a wrong note it's it's super exposed if I need to take a couple seconds to kind of think about where I want things to go next, it's no problem hanging back for a few bars. If you're in a band, if I do that solo, it's real awkward. <laughs> if you just sit there in the middle for four bars and don't really do anything. Um, so, you know, I feel like whenever I start to get antsy in a band setting where I'm, I'm itching for that freedom, I, it's usually right around the time when shows are wrapping up and I'm going out and doing the solo thing for a while. And then right around the time when playing solo, I start to miss the conversation with other people and the exchange of ideas and also just like the raw power and energy that comes from you know four or five or six people all hitting the same thing um, and driving each other forward that's about the time when the solo stuff wraps up and I'm, I'm playing shows with other people again so it's just this really cool ebb and flow and it really makes me appreciate what each one has to offer every hey, time
0: let's talk about equipment for a minute we already touched on it a little bit it's like i feel like you read my notes before i ever came on because you've answered all my questions so well without me ever even going to the paper Um, but obviously a grand is your first choice whenever it's available you're going to want a grand piano that's your main instrument yeah
3: yeah i mean i i love the diversity of keyboard instruments out there i love that as a as a keyboard we get to you know we get to have all the toys (laughs) right um piano is my first love through and through
0: Nothing beats it. I, I saw some video, like we talked about, where you're finger picking on the strings, and now we've talked about it. All, all these other things, but the the stuff you did outside the wilderness sessions, you're on a smaller keyboard. But the videos I saw, you have a bunch of effect pedals, and I think i'm on one of you, had a hammer dulcimer, maybe in front of you. Yeah. Um, what kind of effects are you using when 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 and and why when you're when wow. you're doing this?
3: Okay, so to back up a little bit, the wilderness sessions. I obviously really wanted to have a grand piano because I'm playing all the solo stuff. And one of my favorite things to do, um, you know, when I'm interpreting this music is to get outside the, the normal things that you expect the piano to do and not just play on the keys, but get the sustained notes and get the percussive stuff and get the palm muting and be able to pluck the strings and all these things that really allow me to have the, um, the palette to paint with that. I think you need to really get this music across the way I want to. So I had this, um, You know, this is another one of those like weird late night things like me pulling random kitchen utensils out and seeing what makes a cool sound in a piano. I went through a bunch of experimentation in my living room, um, figuring out like, what can I stick on top of my keyboard that I could take out into the middle of a desert and and try to have some version of the sounds that I usually get out of my grand piano. So I went through all kinds of stuff. Um, I tried a kalimba And I tried using the wand on the kalimba to get the little tines to vibrate without hitting them. And there, there were a lot of fails. Um, but then the hammered dulcimer was, was the win. I'm playing it entirely wrong. I assume I don't know how to play it right. So, (laughs) but yeah, so I, I ran that thing through through an EQ just to get some of the the harshness and super trebly nature of a, you know, shitty $60 version of the instrument (laughs) to mellow out a little, um, and then I grabbed a bunch of pedals uh, that I usually use uh, on my ghost light rig. Oh, I put a looper on there so that I could get some percussive stuff going by smacking the dulcimer or smacking the keyboard and having the vibrations transfer through the dulcimer and then keep that percussive part going so that I could layer some stuff on the piano with my left hand and then also be plucking or using the the wand to sustain new notes on the dulcimer. So that way I could get you know, it was almost sounding like there's a trio happening, mm-hmm. three instruments. Um, so, yeah, that was a, that was another one of those things that was like a, a big problem initially to try to get around and then ended up being something that shaped my playing in a way that I think I'll take with me again out of this year.
0: That happy mistakes are really cool, too.
3: Yeah. There's some stuff that, uh, you know, I won't be able to, I don't think I'll be able to get in the future the way that i did out there you know like one of my favorite moments happened um out on the salt flats at dawn and i had my gear all set up and it's still super dark and it's extremely windy or it was that day before the sun came up and the wind was you know whipping across my rig and um running over the sound hole of the dulcimer and so the strings just started making noises on their own you could hear the, the wind and the space and the expanse and it's running through a few effects too. So it just, it had this like vast sound to it that, you know, it wasn't me. It just happened. Right. And That's... I mean, if you can tell me how to make a moment like that happen in a club, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm all ears because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would love to find that sound again. But I think it's one of those things that it only happens in, in certain places and certain I'm,
0: moments. I'm sure, but having said that, something will happen in a club somehow some way that makes a moment you know what i mean
3: i do and you know that's the other thing it's like each one of these moments and and places has its own special thing just like i was talking about with that record there's like stuff that happens live that you can't do in the studio stuff you can do in the studio that you can't do in a live performance the whole reason i did the wilderness sessions and and headed out to the middle of nowhere was because i was feeling like i was playing in a vacuum doing um the sessions in my living room that initially were this amazing release and way to connect with people and then after you know weeks and weeks of being shut in the house and everything being pretty dark. I was just feeling closed in. And like I was missing the exchange of energy that comes from playing to a room of people. You know, I think we all were obviously. Um, and so with that missing, you know, that, that source, that thing that we we use to make those moments gone. Um, I wanted to go out to the middle of nowhere and try to use the the surroundings as the thing that would feed the music instead of the people in the room. So you
0: know? cool. So, so I that, mean, I
3: that wind over the sound hole of the dulcimer again, but there'll be, there'll be the energy of, you know, people something like we all I know cannot wait to get back to. <laughs>
0: uh, yes. Even, I mean, we've, we've started a little bit. and It's different with the drive-ins and the pods, but it's still people. It's yeah. still a, it's still a human energy and oh man before I let you go I do this with all my guests we're going to play the world's slowest lightning round because it never goes fast but we're going to try so are you ready just write what comes up uh any incarnation your first grateful dead show experience oh see the world's slowest lightning round yeah <laughs>
3: I don't remember what it would have been. I think it was actually, I think at that point, it would have been the other ones.
0: The other ones, like early 2000s?
3: Yeah. Yep. Because I was in high school and I graduated in 2002. So yeah, somewhere in New England.
0: All right. This is going to be a great one from you because you've listened to so much. Your favorite show to listen to?
3: Favorite show to listen to? I don't know. I don't. This is terrible, but uh, I don't, I don't, I don't always even go for complete shows. I know no. that's, I know that's kind of blasphemy, but
0: <laughs> no, it's not because you're working on tunes, so you're listening to chunks of, of what you're working with. I get
3: that. I w- I will say um, one of my favorite things to listen to. Uh, out, it's not technically a dead show, but the Jerry Garcia band shows uh, from '75. In Berkeley, the ones where they have Nicky Hopkins on piano, yeah again, it's that it's that same that's that style that's you know piano heavy and same reason I love the the Keith era, you know.
0: your face just brightened up, just lit up when you started talking <laughs> about that <laughs> uh, I, have a hard
3: time, I have a hard time picking favorite dead shows because it's like it's such a long time too. and
0: well, I'm gonna make it harder on you as we go on. Studio recordings are live
3: live. That's an easy one. Come
0: on. All right. that, okay. <laughs> they're they're going to get hard again. Favorite dead album.
3: Uh, I'd say either, either working man's Dead or American beauty.
0: Are you ready for this one? Uh-huh. Fa- favorite non-grateful
3: dead Actually, album no oxmoxo i might have to i might have to go back to that again it's okay. like apples and oranges they're all really really <laughs> yeah i hate i hate picking favorites
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay then i'm going to phrase this question a little different then <laughs> instead of instead of your favorite non-grateful dead album that non-grateful dead album that you would take to the desert island if you could only take one
3: I don't think I'd take an album, man. I'd t- I'd take that. I'd take my one item and make it a make iPod
0: it. with eight hundred gigs.
3: Oh, I was gonna say a musical instrument, something oh, like okay. an album on, you know.
0: <laughs> Even better. Right, now they're gonna get easier. Favorite color, blue. First job.
3: First job. Hmm. Uh, grocery store clerk
0: favorite venue to play.
3: Mm. Again, I hate playing favorites. Uh I loved playing the Cap. Yeah. I also loved playing out in the middle of the desert. So, can we count that as a venue?
0: Of course. <laughs> I mean, it's all one great big venue, I guess, isn't it? I thought you were going to say Carnegie Hall.
3: Oh, I mean That was an incredible experience, but it's also like I mean, man, that place is the polar opposite of the Cap. It's like it's yeah. like it's very strict very strict i'll never forget we were, we were back there and i think i we we're standing backstage and i think we, we moved a a light like a standing floor lamp or something like three inches out of the way to, to get a photo that didn't have the lamp behind our heads and someone came over and was very upset with us because you know it's a union room and you can't be moving equipment. They have to have one of their guys do it. I was like, oh, come on.
0: <laughs> Not here <laughs> at Carnegie Hall. It must be local number one.
3: Uh, I mean, I'm super grateful for the opportunity to have played that room at all. But uh,
0: um, Where were we? Venue? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. be- best city for a day off. Ooh. This is one that they like, that everybody likes when I ask it.
3: You know, I got to go with something off the beaten path and say that uh last time we started a tour up in uh Bellingham. Bellingham, yeah. We had the best time up there.
0: Right on. It's so pretty up in the Pacific Northwest.
3: Yeah. Or really uh, any anywhere where we can uh take scooters out for a day and and explore.
0: <laughs> right on. <laughs> if that's a good answer. For me, it's anywhere that there's a good golf course really close by.
3: There you go.
0: Everybody has their thing that makes it their favorite.
3: Yeah. You're way less likely to, uh, you know, break your arm golfing than we are running around on scooters. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. uh, first car,
3: uh, I had a Jetta. I also, uh, I also bought an old VW bus and converted it to run on uh, used fryer grease. Shortly thereafter, <laughs> led, led to a lot of uh, adventures and side of the road breakdowns.
0: And now you're a mom and your more domesticated current car?
3: Uh current car? I drive a leaf.
0: Right on. And last but not least, the book you are currently reading. If you even have time being a new mom. Uh,
3: I honestly have not read fiction since the baby showed up. I'm reading a book on baby sleep out of out of desperation, you know, clinging to the thread that someday we'll sleep again.
0: <laughs> I've- we have shelves of them. I have a four-year-old. We have shelves of them. I'll send them all to you because I could
3: fill you your secrets.
0: <laughs> we well, We didn't do that good. It, wasn't that easy. <laughs> it was tough, but in all seriousness, with everything going on in your world right now, thank you so much for taking the time. It's, what you do is so cool and hearing you explain it all is fascinating to me. It's so cool. I love, I love the approach and the, not only how you do it, but how you think about it. So thanks for sharing that with me and everybody out there listening
3: yeah thanks for having me on
0: it was my pleasure so that is Holly Bowling take care and hopefully we will uh, see you out there working again soon can't wait what a great conversation I I just think it's so interesting what she's doing well that brings us to the end of another episode and I would like to thank Holly Bowling and Jake Wolf for being here today I'd also like to acknowledge my sponsors Sarno Music Solutions and Blue Jade Audio Uh, I'm sorry Brad couldn't be here today but he will be back for sure Uh, Also, The Clean Store, The Authenticity Academy, and Grateful Sweats. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support the cause, please consider a monthly Patreon subscription that offers some great bonus content every week. Or you can show your love with a one-time contribution. And please, remember that a portion of your contribution will go to the Rex Foundation. Get info about this and everything else related to the podcast at our website, themusicplaystheband.net. Any love is much appreciated as we try and keep this show rolling along. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. The opening and segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner, Dino English. I'll be back again in two weeks on June 17th with episode 15 when my guest will be my bandmate, guitarist Jeff Madsen. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay vigilant. Things are heading in the right direction, but it's going to take everyone's efforts to truly get us back to normal. Thanks for being here.
1: People join in